Welcome to the Boss Ladies Podcast. I'm Olivia Wary, and as a young female working in the industry of technology, I'm constantly struggling to find my voice and overcome challenges thrown my way. I've decided to have conversations with boss ladies in every industry to hear how they do it. Boss Ladies is intended to inspire women and men of all ages to overcome their fears, explore moonshot thinking, speak up for who they are and what they believe in, and move up in their respective industries. Every day we are faced with challenges, so it is my intention to empower you to get the advice you need by interviewing top executives who have been through it all. On today's episode of Boss Ladies, please welcome Tammy Reese. Tammy is a product strategy leader with 15 years of experience helping startups, established companies, and community profit organizations figure out what to do next. Currently, she focuses on the Insight Partners portfolio as their CPO in residence through her role as SVP of product at Products Labs. She has held many roles, which adds to her ability to understand with different perspectives and in various industries. In 2016, Tammy launched Just Not Sorry, a Gmail plugin used by half a million people around the globe to write more confident emails. Tammy lives with her husband, Nadav, in Manhattan, but grew up in Florida and spent over a decade in L.A. She loves to travel and considers herself a citizen of the world. So thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to have you on the Boss Ladies podcast. I'm excited to be here. Awesome. So can you tell me a little bit about your career journey and what led you to your current role as SVP of product strategy and CPO in residence at Products Lab? So currently, my that role, what just so everyone knows what it means, is I consult with growth and scale-up stage startups, as well as enterprise companies to help them do product-related things better. Um, and I started in April of 2020, so it's been just over eight months. It's been really awesome. It's pretty much my dream job. It's almost like everything I've done leading up to this point has uh, produced this job. CPO in residence is something that I am as part of my role at Products Labs. We have a partnership with a venture capital private equity firm called Insight Partners, and they have a portfolio of around 150 plus companies, all tech related, and we are their product center of excellence. Uh, as part of their value add to the companies that they invest in. And so we get to consult with their portfolio and help them do product better, which is really just fantastic for me. Uh, and a absolute like wonderful match for my skill set. So now you have to listen to what is almost now 20 years of working, unfortunately. Um, and <laughs> I'm excited. Hopefully you'll enjoy that. So let's just start with education. So at UCLA, my undergraduate degree is in physiological science, which is how the body works. And you might think, I'm excited to hear how this went to product. <laughs> yeah, you might think, how did this get to product? I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> Often I talk about how, what that degree really is in, and UCLA in general, the degrees that we offer are really around teaching people how to think and how to analyze things. It was a training in that, but more than anything, it was a training in systems thinking. Because if you think about an elegantly designed system that is integrated and has multiple systems doing all these things all at once, the human body is perfect, right? And if you think about like technical infrastructure towards like microservices and things like that, 
think about how the heart does its job or how the lungs do a job to make all of your body work together. So it's actually really applicable to the way that software is now developed. But back when I started, it was, it was not. Um, but <laughs> that's so interesting. Yeah. As a systems thinker, that's who I am, right? Like that's the way my brain works. I, I think about interconnectivity. And so my degree at UCLA reinforced how are things interconnected and how can one thing not just be an A causes B, but A causes B and C and D, and then C causes 12 other things. And what um, the philosophers of the world currently call complexity theory, which is that like very few things are actually linear. Most things have lots of things that impact them happening. And most things trigger many effects once they happen. And so the human body works that way. So that was part of my education. <laughs> and then I, uh, I got really lucky and went to business school right out of college uh, at the University of Florida, uh, because I thought I was going to be a physical therapist and that I was going to have to run my own office one day and that I should learn accounting skills and basic business skills. And while I was there, I said, Ooh, I don't think I want to be a physical therapist anymore. Um, I really enjoy this business stuff. I enjoy nonprofit work. And so I actually started my first job after B school was I moved back to Los Angeles and I, I worked for the muscular dystrophy association, which is also known as Jerry's kids. And if anyone who's listening has ever been a fundraiser or an event planner, that is what I did. I raised millions of dollars at individual events, like big, big events, and also hundreds of thousands of dollars in much more grassroots campaigns. If you've ever been driving along and had a firefighter uh, have a boot out asking for money, the fill the boot campaign is one of their signature campaigns. And I ran the Los Angeles city and Los Angeles County fire department um, version of fill the boot. Um, So I have, I have a lot of random experience visiting fire stations and CVSs and Albertsons all over LA County. But What I didn't realize then was that I was actually a product manager because I was the fundraiser who would sit there and analyze which zip codes were performing best in our fundraising efforts and how could we optimize our calling script for something called a lockup so that it had better retention, like at better effective rates. And I was the person who looked at our email campaigns and said, all right, I think we should be sending this on this date and this on this date. And we aren't hitting people enough. And this is the message we need to be sending there. And these are the tools we need to be sending there um, to really impact fundraising. (laughs) Which now I could say is A-B testing and optimization. But back then, I was just trying to raise more money for kids in wheelchairs. And that was super fun. And I, and I did fundraising and event planning for a while as a consultant within larger organizations as well. I worked for Hillel International and American Heart Association and United Cerebral Palsy and um, Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And every time I was there, I was the person who'd be like, let's look at the data. <laughs> and that was always entertaining. Um, just, <laughs> To some people, because um, most people were like, we don't have data. What are you looking at? Um, why? Why do you want that? That's awesome. And so being a data-driven person, I said to myself, I really want to be a consultant. And at the time, I thought I wanted to be a nonprofit consultant so that I could help nonprofits work like businesses. 
and be more data driven and be more analytical driven and be more strategic and really think about the operational stuff that they could be doing to improve their impact. And I said, okay, there's all these consulting companies out there, which of them will hire me? And the answer was none. I was on the UCLA job board and there was this role called a product associate product manager at Farmers Insurance. And I didn't really know what it was, but it seemed to be relatively analytical. And somehow I got the job because I can tell you, I didn't really have the qualifications for it, but the person who was my boss saw that I had the, the skills and the passion for data and process. And so I spent around three or four months on what is really a pricing analytics team and a filing with departments of insurance team. Literally, the luckiest thing that happened to me was that someone there said, you're not that great at this job. And... <laughs> Harsh. <laughs> well, well it, was, it, was, it was like, hey, Tammy, you're, you're, you're okay at math. But like our actuarial team is really good at math. It seems like what you're actually better at is understanding markets and trends, not just the numbers. And I was like, okay, thanks. And I said, would you be interested in joining our product development team? And I said, what is the product development team? Because <laughs> I had no idea. And so they explained that the product development team was the team that thought about these new discounts and new offerings that they could provide in auto insurance. There were lots of optimizations that could be done. Anything from when the billing notifications were sent, which was something I worked on, to discounts for teachers or otherwise, things that they already had. But it was a matter of being on this, what was called product development team. And I said, well, that sounds like a really good use of my brain. Cool. I love. <laughs> and so I, I did that for a while. And then I got put on this one project, which I think of as like the worst thing you could ever do to a product manager, which is, first of all, farmers back then was using Lotus Notes. I don't know what they currently use, but there was no sort function in Lotus Notes. Or maybe there was no search. There's definitely no search function. Lotus Notes for email and Lotus Notes for internal processes. Most people have never worked at a company with Lotus Notes, and that's okay. Really, really okay. Uh, but I was working at a Lotus Notes company. They had all of their internal processes done in Lotus Notes. So I got to design an internal tool for product development where you could like put in an idea and then like get it scoped out by the engineering team and then watch it go towards delivery. And that was so cool because while I was at Farmers, I also went to the pragmatic marketing training on agile. And I was like, this agile stuff is badass, right? I love this t-shirt sizing <laughs> thing. This will totally help farmers all of their problems when it comes to like delivery and development. And so I was building this like agile software development cycle tool in Lotus Notes for as an internal tool. And this was my job. And that's, it was, I was like, I'm going to transform the company and it's going to be great. And then I found out that Farmers was a typical enterprise at the time. And I'm, I'm sure that they've improved since then, but they had already agreed to like two years worth of work. Like the roadmap was already set. Oh, geez. All of these ideas, the SVP of product development just wanted to keep in the ideation phase. Like, no discovery, no validation, no nothing, none of the other steps. He was like, I just need everything to, to, to like, be stuck in step one for a while. 
He's like, I need you to stop these notifications that I haven't moved things from step one to step two. And I was like, but the whole point is to move things forward. And he said, we don't have any budget to move anything forward. And I said, but you've just asked a product manager who loves to build things to build the tool where ideas go to die. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, that is the worst thing you could ever do to someone. Like, not only. (laughs) So awful. And so I quit. Like I full on quit that day when it became very clear that that was what I had provided like the tool where <laughs> ideas go to die. <laughs> Good for you. That's awesome. It was very dramatic. And I was like, all right, I'm going to join a startup where people understand the value of product. And I spent probably eight, nine months just exploring the startup ecosystem of Los Angeles. And I did anything from working for comedy.com on promoting individual like website blog post video things on like Reddit and stuff like that. And um, I worked in what's called web arbitrage, which is a part of the web that no one should ever really learn about. But it has to do with like buying and selling ads on Google and bringing them to pages that are pretty much clickbait. I did that. Yeah, I've done a lot of random things in tech. Um, And one day, a friend of mine from Temple, a temple called Ikar in Los Angeles, which I had been part of for around, I guess, like five years at the time, called me and she said, hey, Tammy, what are you up to right now? And I said, well, I'm doing this like web thing, but my boss just left our company to go be the CEO of MySpace. In case you're wondering, this is around 2008. Becoming the CEO of MySpace at the time was a big deal. And, and I said, I said, there's a chance I might get to go with him, but I don't know. I was supposed to be a product manager on these like cool content sites he was working on here. And now he's going to be CEO of MySpace. So Mike Jones was a fantastic boss, but he couldn't bring me over fast enough. And he now runs something called Science, which is a uh, incubator sort of space in Los Angeles, they own Dollar Shave Club, among other things. He is a fantastic human and a fantastic person to work for. But he couldn't bring me over fast enough to my space. Eventually, he moved a lot of my coworkers over. But before that happened, I got this call from this woman named Rachel Light, who still works at the company that I'm about to mention, which is Cornerstone On Demand. And Rachel said, Tammy, we're looking for someone who could be an implementation project manager person. And Adam, our CEO has worked with you on some of this consulting stuff that you've done uh, for our temple. I implemented a SaaS solution that helped our temple manage our members. And so I interviewed for this job at Cornerstone On Demand to be this implementation project manager person. And so Cornerstone On Demand is HR software in the cloud, and they are a native SaaS solution, and they do um, learning management and performance management and goal management and compensation management. And there was this implementation team, a services team that brought on new clients, right? Implemented new clients. And they were looking for someone with project management skills, which I seem to naturally have without training. And they said, would you be interested in joining? And so I interviewed and as luck would have it, Kirsten Helvey, who is currently the COO at Cornerstone On Demand, was the VP who oversaw this services group. And though she had been an IBM consultant before she joined Cornerstone and had lots of amazing credentials, 
when I explained to her why I thought my event planning skills were project management skills, because there's a very clear launch date and I had to work with all these different vendors and really understand the vision of where you're trying to go and how to get there and contingency plan, she bought it because she herself had been an event planner in a previous life at like within Sony Pictures or something. And so she knew exactly why an event planner fundraiser skills would be helpful for implementation of SaaS. That's fascinating. Wow. (laughs) And like, that was my big break that like Kirsten had done it. And so she understood that. And so she hired me and I started an implementations there and I worked on some of our biggest clients. And then I was designing some custom integrations for some of our biggest clients. And Adam, who was the CEO who I was friendly with through our uh, Jewish community, turned to me one day and he said, Tammy, these like specs you're writing for these custom integrations, they should really be part of the product. Would you be interested in joining the product team? And I said, yeah, I would totally be interested in joining the product team. And Adam is a spectacular CEO. And one of the things that he said to me at that time was, All I can tell you is that the next person we put on the product team is going to be female because I want every team we have to be 50-50. I believe in gender diversity and I believe that gender diversity creates the best sort of teams and the best functionality. He understood that different perspectives were important and he was designing a company around that, which was powerful on so many levels. I just had a few things to finish on the implementation team and then I did and it was awesome. And I got to build some really cool integrations. And I was the first product manager there to be agile. But at some point, I just felt like I had peaked there. And I probably hadn't. But I got an offer. And I was stupid. And (laughs) this is a lesson to everybody. When something is too good to be true, trust your gut. It probably is too good to be true. So a startup had offered me this opportunity to be their second-in-command product manager. Their head of product was this awesome producty person who had been trained at Yahoo, which again, in 2010 was a big deal. Um, I'm just going to like name brands that no one cares about anymore. Um, <laughs> and he was moving to Boston because his wife had got a postdoc at Harvard and they needed somebody on the ground in Santa Monica to help really run the team. And I joined this startup that totally thought they were awesome and thought that they were going to get bought by one of their partners. And I just didn't know how to do due diligence at that point about a company to learn about like how bad their finances were or that 98% of their revenue came from this one partnership. And I think on my like 10th week there, we got news that the partnership was being disbanded because even though it was profitable... It was just a distraction to this partner. They were like, we are a multi-billion dollar business and we don't really have time to like worry about $250,000 or whatever it was. They pulled the plug, which meant that like there was no longer funding coming in. <laughs> and so on my 12th week or so, I was called in and I was, I was severed. I was given like two weeks of severance. Blessing in disguise. And I actually went back to work for Mike Jones because Mike Jones at that point had opened science and they, I believe, had already invested in Dollar Shave Club and they were trying to replicate this sort of like a direct-to-consumer model again and again and again in a few different industries. And I helped them launch 
a tool that was a competitor for a site called, I think, Fab, which was one of these like flash sales at nine o'clock in the morning things. If you remember those where like at nine o'clock in the morning, there'd be three things available for sale and everybody would like buy one of the three things. Uh, So they were trying to create a competitor for that called Uncovet. And so I helped them launch that, but it wasn't a a good fit for me for long-term. And I did a few other consulting things. I joined a company that's owned by IAC, which is Barry Diller's company called City Grid Media. I got that job by going to a hackathon. And at the hackathon, I actually created something that I think iPhone just launched, um, which is no way. I created something called In the Middle. And the idea was that like when you're meeting up with a friend, you know where you are, you know what they, where they are, but you have no idea what's in the middle, right? Like you're not familiar with whatever's going on in the neighborhood in the middle. And this was like, especially a Los Angeles problem because like no one liked to drive too far. So if you could like, no, hey, we're looking for sushi in the middle of these two places or we're looking for coffee in the middle of like where we are. And it would suggest a place in the middle. And I think iPhone, I was just reading something. They they recently launched something around this. Um, And I was like, oh, I love that idea. Yeah, but it's like a hackathon project. And so I was the person who demoed at the hackathon. And it turned out that CityGrid was running this hackathon. So CityGrid is the parent company of City Search, again, old.com, predating myself, because before there was Yelp, there was City Search. And um, City Search had evolved into a media conglomerate, which is what CityGrid Media was, um, this whole advertising network. But nonetheless, they had all this local data. And they were throwing this hackathon in an attempt to hire people. And so I did the pitch and the recruiter named Jason, who was in the audience was like, you're a product person. And I was like, I am a product person. <laughs> What's up? <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I'd like to hire you. And I was like, for what? <laughs> and he said, we have a problem right now that all of our product managers are former engineers. And none of them know how to talk about their product. And I just watched you pitch this product that doesn't even work because it was like hackathon, like vaporware, right? And he said, he said, and I believed in it. And he's like, I need you to teach our product managers how to talk about the things that they're building to get customers excited. And I was like, cool, that sounds interesting. And he's like, it's called product marketing. And I was like, never heard of that term but let's have a conversation. (laughs) And so I went in and I interviewed for this product marketing role and it was super fun and super cool. And I got to help these product managers learn how to talk about the value of what they were doing and created templates around product briefs, but they had a massive layoff like mm, four or five months into me being there. And my boss and my boss's boss, who are the people who I showed up to work for quit because they disagreed with the layoff process. At which point I was like, just sort of like a leaf in the wind without very much purpose or direction. And I lasted a few more months there. But at some point I realized I wanted to be in in New York and not in Los Angeles. Um, And so I moved out to New York. They had a New York office, but they uh, weren't willing to transfer me because it turned out they were about to do another round of layoffs. And they took my move to New York as an opportunity to lay me off without having to pay severance. And that was cool for them. Uh, um, but let, less cool for me. But for you, you're moving to New York. <laughs> That's not the time to get laid off. Yeah. And so I moved to New York and back to wanting to be a consultant. 
I was doing a little bit of consulting. I convinced the WeWork at 175 Varick, like the community person at the WeWork at 175 Varick, because they used to have a WeWork Labs there, which was like kind of like a hot desk co-working sort of situation that he let me like hang out and use their Wi-Fi if I was willing to do product strategy sessions with their companies in the labs. So I like, I don't know, once a week spent two hours doing product strategy sessions with companies in an attempt to like either drum up business or like find a job, but also just have free Wi-Fi. Um, and I love it. You created a product role for yourself <laughs> or a product consulting role. Yeah, I created a product role for myself. And while doing that, I met a few really interesting people um, who are some of whom are still friends of mine today. One of the people was like, hey, can you actually like help me with launching this product? I've already, not launching, she already launched it, but she needed help with like redesigning it and really product managing the engineers. And, and I was like, sure. So I helped her out for probably like 15, 20 hours a week. Her, her app, I think at this point is like closed. Like it wasn't a startup that was going anywhere, unfortunately, not because it wasn't a good idea. It just didn't work out. That's happened sometimes in startups, you know, 90 or so percent of the time. Um, but she was friends with this woman named Lauren Gilchrist and Lauren Gilchrist worked for Pivotal Labs and Lauren was looking for another product manager to be on her team. So when our mutual friend had like knew that I was looking and so Lauren, she introduced me. She said, Tammy's been really awesome at helping our startup as this product person. You should talk to her. And so Lauren and I had coffee or lunch. I don't remember, but it was definitely at the Gray Dog on either University Avenue or Fifth Ave, wherever that Gray Dog is in the village. And like, I remember it distinctly. And Lauren and I got along famously. And she was like, okay, I want you to interview for this job to be my coworker. And so I interviewed um, and I read a lot of articles uh, on the Pivotal Labs blog to prepare. And um, Graham Siner, who was ne- who's now the CPO at Pivotal, who then was the New York product manager director or something like that, thought I had a chance and he hired me. And I worked for them for almost two years before I got poached by a smaller consulting shop to be their CEO which was nuts and way too big of a jump, but an amazing learning opportunity. And so I ran a consultancy for a little bit over a year. Um, At Pivotal, I got to be a product consultant. I got to really hone my product skills and product consulting skills and learn from some really excellent other consultants. And that was fantastic um, about processes, about lean, about agile, design sprints. Like it was just super awesome. And I got poached to like try to create something similar at this other dev shop. Um, Again, Tammy did not do enough due diligence to understand exactly what was going on there financially. Um, And I learned a lot about what I should have asked. Um, (laughs) uh, But I ran this consultancy and I turned them from a losing money company to a making money profitable company um, after being unbelievably exhausted after a year or so of doing it, I turned to the owners and I said, I can't do this anymore. I'm not that passionate about running a dev shop. You need to sell this company. Here's somebody who might be interested in buying it. Please talk to him. And so he bought the company and they are still in existence today. They are called Deaf Method and they do great work and he's been able to grow everybody and it's so wonderful. Um, He's still a friend of mine, the person who bought the company. Like he was at my wedding. Like he comes over for dinner, good people. And then I was jobless again. 
And so I did a little bit of consulting by myself and trainings and things like that. And um, but I thought I needed to go back into non-consulting roles. And I jokingly said that I needed to be there for the second or third iteration of something and had been too long. Camila Velasquez, who's, I don't know if she's now CPO at JustWorks, but she was <laughs> VP of Product at JustWorks, and then she became SVP of Product at JustWorks. She's a rising star in product and marketing and other things. She is fantastic. And she was a fantastic boss. She hired me to be a general manager of what's called self-service at JustWorks, which was this product role where I got to do producty things around self-service, but also be thinking about marketing and also be thinking about operations and also be thinking about revenue, which were things that I could do because I had been a CEO and had to worry about those sorts of things. And I, I ran this business line and it was awesome. And I spent pretty much two years there, half of it on the product team, half of it technically on the sales team, but still running the same product. JustWorks is a fantastic company and a fantastic place to work. But I had this, I had, I got a call in February from Melissa, Melissa Perry, who's the CEO of Products Labs. And she sent me an email that said, Hey, uh, I was just talking to our mutual friend, Trace Wax, who is at a a consulting company called Philosophy, um, but used to be at ThoughtBot, another like dev shop. And Trace and I have been friends from when I was running uh, the, the dev shop. And she said, I was talking to Trace about this job and he said, I should talk to you. And so what it actually turned out happened was she was talking to Trace about this job that I now have that I told you was my perfect job. And he forwarded her an email from three years prior when I had left Cyrus and we had been talking about what my dream job was when I was leaving Cyrus. And I said, I want to work within a venture capital firm on helping them take the money they've invested in startups and helping them develop products better within those startups because most startup founders do not understand how to run a product, do not understand about lean validation, do not understand about agile. And they've got into product market fit without that. And that's great, but they're not going to be able to take it to the next level without strong product leadership. And I want to help them do that. And so Trace forwarded her this email I had written about my dream job from three years prior that now fits what Insight was doing with Melissa <laughs> through this CPO and residence thing. Wow. And we had this conversation. It was like, well, this is totally where I should be doing. And when I told Camila what it was, um, she was like, wow, that really does sound like the perfect job for you. And when I told other executives at JustWorks, they were like, wow, that really does sound like your dream job. You should go do it. And so now I do it. So do you want to explain sort of what Just Not Sorry is and then tell us a little bit about what you what inspired you to create that and what kind of impact it's had? Uh, yes, absolutely. So Just Not Sorry is a Google Chrome extension, which we refer to as a Gmail plugin, even though there's no such thing as a Gmail plugin, but people understand Gmail plugin more than Google Chrome extension. Um, <laughs> and so it's a Gmail plugin that underlines when you type words such as just, sorry, I think, I believe, and try and trying and I would or I could, all of these words that diminish the strength of your message. And um, it was inspired while I was working at Cyrus, one of the things I attempted to do in a marketing branding exercise towards new revenue at Cyrus was to make Cyrus the best place for female founders to develop their startups. And that meant that I got to do a lot of work with female founders. And I was at this brunch And there were a bunch of female founders in the room. And one of them said something like, I wish I could stop saying I'm sorry. And I wish I could stop saying just. And I was like, cool. 
And I said, well, what if I created a, like a Gmail plugin that highlighted the word just every time you wrote it? And she was like, that would be awesome. And someone else said, can you do it for sorry too? And I said, well, you can do it for one or you can do it for two. Like how complicated could that be? And then someone else in the room was like, if you did that, I would tell everybody. And I was like, all right, like I do lean validation. That means that there's something here. Um, someone's willing to give social capital towards this. The next week, the lead engineer at Cyrus that I was running was on the what we call the bench, meaning he wasn't assigned to a particular client. And I said, Steve, here's the deal. We're going to have so much fun this week. We're going to build this tool. And he was like, awesome. And so they did a few spikes and they were able to figure out how to do it. It took like literally three days to program like overall <laughs> multiple tests. Like it's such a simple application <laughs> and we iterated on it and then um, talked to a few people and we decided to launch actually like the Monday after Christmas, which is an incredibly slow news week, which is possibly why we did so well. So like, first of all, just not sorry, struck a chord. We created this like pledge thing where um, not only did you download the application, but you pledged to send more confident emails in back then, 2016, because it was 2015. <laughs> and and we, my goal was to get 10,000 people to sign this. Right? That's all I wanted was 10,000 people to sign this. And within a month, we had 100,000. Because we had 10,000 within wow. a month. Um, because it was such a slow news week that we got covered on the Today Show twice. We got covered on Fox News. Um, Kara Silverman, who's a friend of mine, um, did a little bit of PR and um, forwarded it to something called The List, which is this powerhouse of women email list uh, thing. And she forwarded it there and someone from Slate picked it up and she called me and interviewed me and then put it in Slate. And Jillian Morris, who runs a, a travel startup called Hit List, put it into Product Hunt and by like eight o'clock in the morning on product hunt, we already had like a thousand or like a hundred thumbs up or something like that. Like it went like gangbusters and I've never been part of anything that exciting. I got phone calls from NPR in Scotland at like five o'clock in the morning because the phone from the office was being forwarded to my cell phone because it was Christmas week and our office was closed. Oh my God. That's insane. I got interviewed by a talk show in Australia and like, so much impact. And so at this point, there's over 500,000 people who use Just Not Sorry. Literally once a month, we get covered in a news outlet without me doing any PR right now. We're talking on, we're going on, this will be, this is four years, like four years, Just Not Sorry has been out there. And literally yesterday, there were three articles written about it, like Mashable covered it or something. And so they covered it and then distributed it into two other languages. And last month it was covered in the guardian and PC magazine just put it on a list of top 12 applications you should have. And the New York times covered it recently about something else. And the New York times covered it actually quoting me recently because they asked me if we cover three exclamation points, like does it underline three exclamation points, which we do. That was actually a recent addition. We've been evolving the tool. Um, but it's so awesome, but I feel like we should be doing more with it. So Kara and I are actually chatting right now about like, should we do a Kickstarter campaign to put it onto Outlook? I mean, it really is powerful. I was giving a, like a short, like literally like a two minute talk, like a lightning talk at a first round capital event where I'm a mentor and I talked about the power of language 
And I said, I really believe in the power of language, the power of words, and the power of word choice. And I said, so much so that I built this app called Just Not Sorry. And someone in the audience was like, you built that? You've changed my life. And I was like, oh, that makes me feel oh, that's so great. Awesome. You know? um, because it's, it's really about mindfulness. Because like, if you can use the app, it will actually train your brain to be much more aware and more cognizant of your using of the words. Um, at which point you become a more confident commuter, it, communicator in person and not just on email, but also in text messages, also when you're talking to people. What do you think men can be doing to be better allies in the workplace? I think first of all is listening. When someone mentions something to you, to, to authentically listen and say, tell me why you think that's problematic. Not, oh, that's not a big deal. Like, do not be dismissive. If one of your female coworkers cringes at something and is like, wow, that was gross, right? Like, ask why. <laughs> Be empathetic. Like, yes. step one, listen. <laughs> um, so, like, that's step one. And then step two is understand that you also have a voice and that by you contributing your voice in a non, like, oh, Susie said this sort of way, but a... I understand why Susie was upset, right? And because I listened. Um, and then trying to help expose other people to the background of why something might be upsetting or might be problematic so that more people can have their eyes open, right? And have a more meaningful conversation. You have to also speak up. You also have to put your neck out there, right? That's what allyship is about. And if you just do those two things we will be a lot better off. Like there are many more steps after that, but start there, right? Start by listening to the people who your, your coworkers are that are, that are cringing, that are thinking these are problematic. Like whether they are women, whether they are LGBTQ, whether they are people of color, whether they come from a different socioeconomic background or whatever it is that you want to define as diversity, like listen and become empathetic to a situation that is not your own right? Understand that you probably have privileges that you've never known about and in, in, in an intersectional way, right? That it isn't just like, oh, okay, all men this or all women this or all black people this or all... Like, there's so much intersectionality out there. And to just take a deep breath and say, like, I probably don't have a full understanding about why someone might get upset about this. And so once you can have that empathy, then start educating other people. Can you tell me what you feel is one of your greatest accomplishments, even though you have definitely articulated there are so many, which is awesome? Um, well, Just Not Sorry is generally what I think of when I'm like most proud, because to have that much impact on people is incredible, right? To know that you've actually changed their lives and hopefully helped them get promotions and better salaries and just be more confident out of the world. I think is fantastic. So that's really what first comes to mind. I mean, personally, I travel a lot. I get to see lots of countries. That's fun. Um, but I think that for sure. But I think that like, when I look back at my career, I think something that makes me generally proud is the resilience of being able to work in many different situations and to adapt to different situations and to, to, to do that in a, in a repeatable way, right? That like, I know you can drop me into pretty much any company and I will find a way to make their product team better because of the experiences I've had. And there was a point in my career where 
people would look at my resume and say, it's really choppy, right? Or it doesn't have a normal trajectory. And I used to beat myself up about that because like, I thought I was weird and I couldn't keep a job or something or that I left too soon. (laughs) And in some cases, I do think I left too soon. Like I think I left Cornerstone too soon, as I mentioned earlier, because it's a really fantastic place. But at the same point, because I left, all these other doors opened, right? And I think that like, looking back at life and being able to say like certain decisions might not have seemed perfect at the time, but the end result of where I am right now is fantastic. And to find places that appreciate my skill set of being able to work with seven different companies at once, you know, that's a specialized skill set that I now feel proud about. And the ability to, to like now as a 37 and a half year old, to be lucky enough to have an opportunity where my skills are appreciated. So like, now I'm much more resilient about it and much more confident about it. But I, what I'd love to communicate to the people who are listening to this podcast is just because right now you might feel out of place, that there isn't a job that fits you, that there isn't a role that fits you or a company that fits you, doesn't mean that in the future that might not change. Uh, because the more you keep being authentically yourself the more there is a probability that eventually the right door will open and you will be the perfect person to walk through it. I think that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. Awesome. It was great talking to you, Olivia. For more information about Boss Ladies, go to www.bossladiespodcast.com. Also check us out on Instagram at bossladiespodcast. Check back soon for another episode of Boss Ladies. Boss Ladies.